So um, Anthony's going to be teaching on the book, in the book of John. Uh, and so as he, um, <laughs> it was so funny, I was in prayer in my little secret room that James built for me. And uh, I was praying, and the Lord kept directing me back over to the book of John. And I thought, well, Anthony's going to be teaching on it. And uh, so I just kept praying, and something be began to just move in me. And about that, I text Anthony, and I says, who's teaching uh, Wednesday night? And he says, well, the gal that was going to teach couldn't make it. And uh, he said, so I guess I'm going to be teaching in John a different section. And uh, the Lord had already... Uh, put this word in my heart. And so it's an introduction to the book of John. So he's going to start that Bible study on July 5th. And uh, tonight I'm going to just refresh your memory about John the Apostle and maybe give you a little a perspective that you may not have considered. Uh, first of all, I'm going to tell you a little bit about John. John was the brother of the Apostle James, who was martyred for the Lord with the sword. He was also the son of Zebedee, a fisherman of Galilee, and John and James were cousins to Jesus as their mother Salome was sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. John, his brother James, and the apostle Peter and Andrew were all partners in a fishing business prior to their calls by Jesus to follow him. Zebedee, the father, was also a partner in this, little, this business. The family lived in Galilee, probably at Bethsaida, and there are reasons for us to think that the family was not without means. In other words, they had a little money. They had hired servants, so they belonged to the employer class. John's mother, Salome, was one of the women who ministered to Jesus out of her substance, which is in Luke 8, 3. John, 23 years old, was a convert of John the Baptist and spent some time with him in the Jordan Valley. And it was here that he met Jesus and transferred his allegiance from John to Jesus. What happened? John heard John the Baptist say as he saw Jesus walk by, Behold, the Lamb of God. And that was all it took. Andrew, Peter's brother, and John immediately followed Jesus. And they wanted to know where he was staying. He invited them to come and see. And their stay changed their lives and was so memorable that many years later, when John wrote the story in the gospel, he still remembered that it was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when this happened. The next day, he and some others accompanied Jesus to Galilee to attend a wedding feast at Cana. From Cana, they went to Capernaum and then down to Jerusalem, where Jesus, or I should say up to Jerusalem, where Jesus cleansed the temple and had an interview with Nicodemus. John was with Jesus for seven months this first time in the country of Judea, calling the people to repentance and baptism. Since Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, John undoubtedly helped him in administration of the baptismal rite. 
When Jesus heard of John the Baptist's arrest, he decided to return to Galilee, and the disciples returned to their normal occupation, fishing. So the second time, sometime after this, when John and his brother James had resumed fishing, they again encountered Jesus by the Sea of Galilee and at once decided to follow him. The four partners, James, John, Peter, and Andrew, all fishermen, joined, them, joined Jesus at that time. They continued with Jesus through his Galilean ministry, witnessing the events later reported in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John was then chosen, along with 11 others, as one of the 12. And that verse is, And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And as I was reading that, he gave that power to the 12, one being Judas Iscariot. Now he is chosen to be part of the inner circle. I have always desired to be part of the inner circle with the Lord. You know, there was the 70, there was the 12, there was the three. I've always desired that place. But he was given that, brought into that circle of three. And he traveled with Jesus, and he was one that saw the raising of Jairus' daughter, along with James and Peter. And that scripture says, And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. He was one of the three with Jesus on the mountain uh, when the transfiguration occurred. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. There was not light upon Jesus. There was light coming from him. What kind of man was John? Jesus selected him as one of the 12 disciples. He further selected him to be one of the inner circle, and he granted him the privilege of beholding his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. We view the finished product in John. John the beloved, John the apostle of love, the revelator, but it was not that way in the beginning. He didn't manifest humility. He was self-promoting. He was a hothead. He had a fervent, passionate personality. He was intolerant. He was anything but that dove-like person that we often see in paintings where he's leaning against Jesus' breast or he's just looking up at him. Jesus even gave him and his brother Andrew the title Sons of Thunder. But John was in training. Jesus was looking past the rough spots. He knew 
who John would become. And there are some of us that have rough spots. But he wouldn't give up. He didn't back off. But he was rough. But he was, and he was in training. Some of those instances that show his personality. When en route to Jerusalem, John became increased incensed at the hostility of the Samaritan village, at a Samaritan village. He was a Jew. Now it came to pass, it says, when the time had come for him to be received up, Jesus was getting ready to, to die, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the, a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because he was going to go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But Jesus turned and he rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So he was a little protective there, I'd say, or a little insolent. And then he had mistaken zeal. And it's indicated by his rebuke of a man who was casting out demons without Jesus' authorization. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade them because he did not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid them. For no one works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. He was doing it in the name of Jesus. So he's a little bit of a control freak there too, I think. The two sons of of sons of thunder threatened their relationship with the other ten by seeking a favored position in the future kingdom. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine, that's James and John, may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom. And he told her, he says, are they willing to drink of the cup that I'll drink of? They said, yes. And are you willing to be baptized with the baptism he was baptized with? They're, they're yeah, they're, they're, yeah. And he says, you'll do that. You will drink of that cup. And he said, but that place is not mine to give. That was his father's place to give. With seeing his personality, seeing that Jesus had to correct him, can you imagine how he felt on the Mount of Transfiguration when he sees Jesus transfigured before his eyes and the Shekinah glory shining from Jesus? His garments are radiant, excellent, exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And he sees Elijah 
sees Moses with a cloud overshadowing them, and out of the cloud comes the voice of God. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. What a unique privilege these three disciples had. How humbling this experience. John had some character traits that needed tempering, and Jesus knew just what to do. And in us, we are also under construction. God knows how to temper us. But then it goes on. Just before the Passover, John and Peter were commissioned by Jesus to place, to prepare, uh, to place, uh, prepare a place for partaking of the Passover. And at the Last Supper, it was John, the son of Zebedee, who, reclining close to Jesus, first learned the identity of the betrayer. However, he didn't seem to pass this information on to Peter because Peter was, had also asked. Later, John was in Gethsemane when Jesus was agonizing and praying and asking the Father if it were possible that this cup would pass for him. With, from him. He'd asked the disciples to pray with him, and these three went further toward him. They should have been praying. Three times he comes back and he asks them, but they were sleeping. But he was there. When Jesus was arrested and he's taken to the court of the high priest, John was there. It said, It is widely believed that the unnamed disciple who entered the court of the high priest with Peter was John the Apostle because this disciple was known to the high priest. The beloved disciple, again, is at the foot of the cross. He was the only disciple that saw the crucifixion. And while Jesus was hanging on the cross, the others had all deserted him. They were hiding. John was there. And Jesus looks down from the cross, and he requests that John take his mom and take care of her, and John did. John was the first one, after Jesus was resurrected and they went to the tomb, he was the first one that recognized the significance of the empty tomb. And he was the first one that identified Jesus, Jesus' appearance at the Sea of Tiberias after his resurrection. He knew that was Jesus, and he told Peter, it's him. He recognized him. He was a prominent member of the Jerusalem church when Paul visited it later, and nothing further was known about him, but according to church tradition, he was a bishop at Ephesus. There is a tradition, I'm not saying it's true, but I will share that, that um, he was actually thrown into a pot of boiling oil. Tried to, they tried to kill him, and it was a miracle of his, uh, he was rescued from that, didn't harm him at all. Uh, that's not, I don't see that in the Bible, and I'm not sure that that's the case, but nevertheless, but they were, Domitian 
exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. And he was exiled there, there the last decade of the first century, and he receives the awesome revelation of Jesus Christ, your book of Revelation. The Lord brought John from a place of spiritual immaturity to walk in maturity. God transformed this son of, this son of thunder to an apostle of love. John had the ability to be narrow. He had the ability to be dogmatic. He had the ability to be exclusive. He had the ability to be prejudiced. He had the ability to isolate himself and draw a hard line. And he had the ability to be black and white. You want to know something? <laughs> That's usable if it's for the right things. What would God choose a man like that? Why would he choose him? Why would the Lord Jesus make him an apostle? Because this is the kind of man that can be shaped into strength. You got a self-willed child? Consider it a blessing and work with it. And make them a strong child. Steer them in the right direction. Rachel could tell you she was a strong-willed child, but through prayer and bending and molding, it, it, it's, a, it's a better place to be. It had the potential to be hard. He had the potential to be hard for the truth. That was why he was hard. What the Lord had to do was make him loving. He had all the attributes, the stick-to-itiveness. He had the brass and, and the... Uh, Stability to stand for truth, but he needed to have love. He had that kind of personality of conviction, of narrowness, uncompromising, intolerant devotion to what was true. He was very black and white. He had a clear-cut view of spiritual realities. There was nothing vague in his world, and that was good, and God needed it, but it had to be tempered with love. That's John. Now, what sets apart the book of John that you're going to be studying start next week? Knowing what kind of a person that John was, knowing the personality that God worked with, when you read uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the book of John, you look and you will see that. He is staunch. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels, are called synoptic because they see together with a common view. The synoptic view. And this synoptic view is they viewed Jesus from the earth up, the historical man. They present him as a historical figure and declare his deity. But John views Jesus from heaven down, strongly emphasizing his deity. And I love that. He views Jesus from heaven down. And did you realize that that is the position that God is calling us to? We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our view should be 
from heaven down, not down here struggling in the dirt. So John views Jesus from heaven down, strongly emphasizing his deity. This emphasis runs from the very beginning with the word becoming flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was made flesh. No one else, no one else got it the way he put it down. He's, ex he's expounding, and he's finishing, and he's adding to the word to where you can see the heavenly viewpoint. <clears throat> so he does this. The emphasis runs from the beginning with the word becoming flesh and to the end where Thomas confesses Jesus as his Lord and God. John's purpose statement, which is in at the chapter 20, verses 30, 31, explains why he stressed Jesus' deity. It says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. The apostle John witnessed the transfiguration, and he beheld the deity of Jesus. While in the Isle of Patmos, he was given a surpassing revelation of Jesus. In response, he writes in 3 John 3.14, he writes, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Has not seen God. The lifestyle that we exhibit is a direct reflection of the extent to which we have seen God. If we were to see God perfectly, we would never sin. Our sin is a result of a faulty vision of God. Therefore, the scriptures encourage us to look at Christ for the day when we see him perfectly will be the day that we will be like him. That is so deep right there. So, he who does evil has not seen God. I have ran into people who were living in adultery, that were doing all kinds of things that were unseemly and ungodly, that professed <clears throat> to, to love God. And I have said at one time, but you don't fear him. Because if you feared God, and people don't, for some reason or other, they don't recognize that. If you don't fear God, you will do anything you want. But if you have a fear of God, a healthy fear of God, if you saw who he is, if Jesus Christ of Nazareth was standing right here, and the Shekinah glory of the Lord was just exuding from him. 
and he had his hands outstretched to you, who would sin when they are beholding him? Who would dare do such a thing? But we have no fear. We've lost the fear of the Lord, not all of us. But it's so easy to just be slipshod. So the lifestyle that we exhibit is a direct reflection of the extent to which we have seen God. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with the veiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are just temporary. <laughs> but the things which are not seen are eternal. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The fourth gospel, this gospel of John, is the easiest gospel to understand. It is both simple and it is profound. It clarifies some things that the synoptic gospels leave us just mysteries. One writer wrote, and I like this, it is a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. So we find in the synoptic gospels that many events in Jesus' life, most of them from Jesus' ministry in Galilee, in much the same order, will still leave unanswered questions. The book of John is going to answer that. They'll answer those unanswered questions. Matthew presents Jesus as the king, but it does not articulate the reason for Jesus' great authority. But the book of John does. Mark presents Jesus as the servant, but it does not account for his depth of consecration to God. But John does. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man, but it does not explain his uniqueness from the rest of humankind, but John does. The Gospel of John reveals answers to the mysteries about Jesus that the synoptic Gospels leave hidden. The statement of the message of this Gospel occurs in John 1, 18. 
no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You want to see God? You want a picture of God? You pick up your Bible. That's Him. John claimed that Jesus was the explanation of God the Father. This gospel presents Jesus as the one who manifested God to humankind. Without divine revelation, we can create a false view of God. God sometimes may be imagined as an immense version of us with human personality and cosmic proportions. God's revelation of himself involved the limitation of himself to humanity, the exact opposite approach. This is what God did in the incarnation. But if you think you've got God figured out, you are mistaken. If you think you know how big God is, you are mistaken. He is not like us. We are made in his image, but he is not like us. We're just a pipsqueak. But he gave us a picture of himself in Jesus. Not necessarily the way he looks, because God is the spirit. But the nature of God, the love of God, the compassion of God. That's the picture. John presents Jesus as the Son of God. He wanted his readers to review, to view Jesus and to see God. In the tears of Jesus, we should see what causes God's sorrow. In the compassion of Jesus, we should see how God cares for his own And in the anger of Jesus, we should see what God hates. There's also a list in Proverbs. Revelation 5, 1 through 14. And and I, this is the, actually the crux of what I want, I'm wanting to say and what I felt that the Spirit had. You have got to have a picture of Jesus. You've got to have that in your mind because it changes you. I was very fortunate in a sad time, and if people have been here, I probably have told this every time I've been up here. I had a manifestation. And and I know that Jesus is on the throne, but he gave me a picture of himself at a time when I was so down, heartbroken, hopeless. And he was, he, I saw him with his arms outstretched, didn't say a word to me, but I felt such love, such compassion, such a presence of God. And I started laughing because it was just, I always knew that God was real, but It was a manifestation for me because he was going to show me, you're going to go through some things. 
But I want you to know I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm always here to comfort you. I'm always here to lead you and to guide you. But we need to have a picture of God. This changed the Apostle John. Revelation 5, and this is another thing that I felt, I don't know if this, if this makes sense to anybody, praise the Lord. And I saw, this is Revelation 5, 1 through 14, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood my lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Then he came, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. This is the picture, my friend. This is the picture of the majesty of God we cannot comprehend what he has done for us, or who he is. Only with just a little glimpse that we have, but we know that he loves us. So John saw the Lord. He saw the transfiguration, and he saw this vision. And he writes 
thereafter with great boldness. <laughs> he is direct and assertive. People could look at some of the things that he has written and they could be offended. It's like the book of James or the book of Jude. People can get their, their feathers all ruffled, but it's the word of God. He is direct. He is assertive. He is authoritative in his writing. He is committed to absolutes. He is black and white. These are days when Christian thinking is accepting, tolerant, inclusive, uncertain, lacking in doctrinal clarity, lacking in conviction. It is given to tolerance. It is given to compromise. This is a perfect time to hear from John. This black and white, dogmatic, exclusive, absolute, authoritative apostle, the Apostle John. <laughs>